0: You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CiboloCreek.com. So I was born in July of 1962. So if you do the math, yes, last month I turned 60 years old. How in the world did that happen? So that means I was 8 years old in 1970. 1970, long hair on both men and women, bell-bottom pants, platform shoes, and really wide white belts. (laughs) We were styling. (laughs) Eight years old in 1970. In 1970, a certain trend happened in America, an interesting phenomena. In 1970, you may remember that the Vietnam War was still a thing. It'd be another three years before that conflict would come to an end. In 1970, there was a lot of opposition to the war and to the soldiers fighting in that war. And it was heartbreaking to know that many of those soldiers returned home, not to a hero's welcome, but to be maligned and abused their feelings hurt for having served their country out of instructions of those who were in authority, and it was not a good time. So in an era of a lot of protest, there are a couple of, there are a couple of students, three in particular, at a university out in California that wanted to show their support for our soldiers, and they looked at a number of different ways to try to raise the visibility of all that was happening in the life of our, of our soldiers serving in Vietnam. And they struck onto this fashion trend. Three college students wanting to have a voice in opposition to the protest. And they created these things called POW bracelets. Now, some of you who are my age or older, you'll, you'll remember these. It was a simple presentation, a small metal band that you wore around your wrist. It would have the name of the soldier who was a prisoner of war who was missing in action, what branch of the service they were in and when they were taken prisoner and where. And much to the surprise of these students, over 5 million of these bands were sold. This bracelet sold from $2.50 to $3. But it helped change the attitude of a nation toward our soldiers when they came to realize that many of them had been taken captive and were experiencing incredible brutality and torture and viciousness that is unimaginable. And the arrangement was that if you bought or were given one of these bracelets, you would wear it until your soldier was returned to the United States, whether he came home alive or whether his remains were returned to his family. And then the custom was that you would take your band off, your bracelet off, and you would mail it to his family to let him know that you had been supporting that particular soldier. Now, There's so many fascinating things about that whole story. But one of the interesting things that I am intrigued by is that you have these complete strangers taking a certain ownership for people they had never met. Five million bracelets. They weren't their dads. They weren't their brothers. They weren't their uncles, they were people that they'd never met, but they somehow connected to what it was that was going on in their life. And they took a certain ownership and a certain responsibility. And some of the stories coming out of the, the history of the POW bracelets, some of those people wore those bracelets for 10, 15, 20 years before learning that their soldier had been returned. And I just have to tell you that there's something about that outpouring of support for complete strangers that resonates with my heart as a pastor of this church. Let me tell you why. Martin Luther King delivered a famous speech that's now called I Have a Dream. Well, your pastor has a dream. For 25 years, I've been dreaming about what God could do through a group of people called Cibola Creek Community Church. 25 years I've been hoping and wishing and praying for some things to happen. I'll tell you one of them and I see it happening One of the things that I dreamt about when I started this church is that men would begin to feel comfortable telling another man, I love you as a brother. And I hear men in our church assure one another, I love you. Without that being weird, without that being uncomfortable, but men coming to grips with the fact that it is possible to have the kind of a friendship, a camaraderie with one another that's like brothers. And we can say, I love you. But here's another dream I've had, that somehow if we were the only church in America that this church would figure out how to introduce the generations to one another where they would be actively involved in each other's lives, little people knowing big people, young people knowing old people, and old people knowing young people. Being involved in their lives, being interested in what's going on in each other's world, but most of all, each of the generations learning from each other because the little people, the young people, they have a lot to learn from the experience of older people. But you know what? Older people, we have a lot to learn from younger people. We have a lot to learn about our faith from the youngest among us. That's why Jesus said, let the little children come unto me because they get it more than most of us because of our our fears and our stresses and worries. If we could just become this church where we all appreciated and valued each other, what if? Every big person at Sybil Creek adopted a child or a student at Sybil Creek and committed, I'm going to pray for that child. I'm going to encourage that child. I'm going to mentor that child. I'm going to sponsor them all the way through graduation. I'm going to be a part of a kid's life. I think it could revolutionize not just a church, but it could revolutionize a community. That's part of my dream for this church. So, last week, we embarked on this discussion about paying it forward. Because it's a very biblical principle. We see it all through the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. One generation was supposed to pass on their faith to the next generation who would then pass their faith on to the generation following them. Here's just a couple of sample scriptures that we looked at last week or examples of this, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Fix these words of mine, God's words, the truth. Fix these words of mine in your heart and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and make them a part of who you are. Teach them to your children. These things that you are learning about your faith, teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, meaning all throughout your day, interweave your faith into the discussion of what happens in your home make it completely normal and comfortable that families talk about these kinds of things these things of faith write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the lord swore to give to your ancestors as many of the days that the heavens are above the earth this passage in the book of psalms my people Hear my teaching. This is the pleading of God. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old, things we have heard and known, things we got from our ancestors. They told them to us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. One parent, one adult celebrating what God has done in their life in front of their children so that they may give witness to what God is capable of doing in his faithfulness. He decreed statutes from Jacob and established the law in Israel. Look at this, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so that the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born. This is the kind of foresight that this is about. Even the children yet to be born, they in turn would tell their children. Now, again, we could go to a dozen more verses like this that illustrate this very consistent principle. But here's some of the things that we looked at last week. In the community of faith, where people make professions of faith in God. God gave adults the responsibility to pass their faith on to their children. While this is primarily the responsibility of parents, it is not solely a parent's responsibility. The community of faith they see all children, all teens, all young adults, adults as part of the legacy they leave for the future of the gospel, the church of tomorrow. That even when they're not your son or not your daughter, we as a community of faith, we have a responsibility to them to pass on our faith and be a part of them coming to understand what it is to trust God. And so as we looked at last week, it does. It takes a village. We are that village that our children and our students and our young adults are growing up in. And the question is, What are we passing on? Are we passing our faith on? In a faith community, once parents release their own children to fly, they then offer their experience as mentors to help other children take flight. You remember this from last week? Thank you, Jerry. (laughs) Do the rest of you remember this from last week? Don't make me start this over. Okay, so today, I want to introduce you to another part of this concept. It's interesting, when you study the Bible, there are certain things that are very explicitly said. It's very clear what God wants us to understand, what God wants us to do, but sometimes what we learn from the scriptures is implied. It's not specifically stated, but the example of the scriptures consistently portray something to be true, So here's a very implicit discussion of the scriptures, but it's also explicit because we see this language all through the New Testament. You guys ready? The first concept is the church is a family. And here's how that works. When you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us, John chapter one, that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become adopted Into God's family, we become his sons and his daughters. So, if all of us, though none of us are related by blood, if all of us are related through a shared faith in Jesus Christ, that means we're not just God's sons and daughters, we are what to each other? We are brothers and sisters. We are a family. And so, you see this language all through the New Testament: brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. We also see something else consistently throughout the New Testament. And we see that one person putting their arm around another person and serving as a mentor, serving as an influence, having input, making an impact. And so let's begin with the premier example, Jesus. When he takes on his public ministry at around the age of 30, what's the first thing that he does? He selects 12 young men to mentor. They're called his disciples. I want you to make note of the fact they were not his biological children. They were young men that he saw potential in and he invested his life in them. Another example in the New Testament, the apostle Paul one of the premier leaders of the early church wrote most of the letters that we read about in the New Testament. Guess what he did? He spent his life mentoring individuals in their faith. And there's four young men specifically in the context of the New Testament that we see the apostle Paul taking under his wing and investing in their life. He teaches them the gospel He teaches them what it is to follow Jesus. He teaches them what it is their responsibility as messengers of the gospel and the ambassadors of Christ on this earth. The first one of those young men is a young man named Timothy. Timothy became a pastor. The apostle Paul wrote at least two letters to Timothy. We have them in our new Testament. First and second Timothy, Paul's letter to this young pastor. And look how Paul talks about Timothy. For this reason, I've sent to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ, which agrees with what I teach you everywhere in every church. The Apostle Paul, this is, Timothy is not his biological son, but it's a son whom he loves with his heart because he's a son of faith, 1 Timothy, to Timothy, this is his introduction to the letter, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. What unites us together in a relationship is our understanding of Jesus Christ, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see consistently the apostle Paul invested in a young man named Timothy. We also see that he invested in a young man named Titus. Titus, again, one of the church leaders, one of the people that Paul writes a letter to. And so in his uh, letter to Titus, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Again, not a biological child, but somebody that he's connected to through a shared understanding of Jesus. Then there's another young man. He has a very interesting name. I don't ever see this parents naming their kids after this one, Um, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a young man from the church at Ephesus. He went to visit the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He went and he spent several months trying to take care of Paul's needs, making sure that he had food to eat and he had the resources that he needed in order to continue what ministry he could have while he was imprisoned. And while Epaphroditus was there, he got really sick. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that Epaphroditus almost died. So the apostle Paul makes a decision, Epaphrodites, it's time you to go home. Go home and tell them about how I'm doing. And he tells the church, receive men like Epaphrodites with honor because he's given his life for the gospel. Paul speaks of Epaphrodites with very affectionate sorts of terms, like he's a son. The next person that we see that Paul had a, a mentoring um, influence in, Again, another very interesting name I don't see a lot in our children's ministry, Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave who was owned by a gentleman named Philemon. And Onesimus ran away. And in his running, he crossed paths with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul led him to Christ. Christ and started mentoring him in the things of faith. And so there came a time when the apostle Paul wrote a letter to Philemon, his owner, inviting him to receive Onesimus back without penalty, because he's now a fellow Christian like Paul and Philemon were. That's the book of Philemon in your New Testament. Therefore, although Christ, In Christ, I could be bold and I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my, what? My son. He's not my biological child, he's my son by faith who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and me. So implicitly implied throughout the New Testament are these illustrations of the Apostle Paul and Jesus and others developing relationships with younger generation to help encourage them in their faith, to see them as actual sons People, it was like they adopted them to make them a part of their life, took them under their wings and encouraged them in a life of deep devotion to Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. What kind of mood are you guys in? You ought to be in a good mood. I mean, we started this service off at like 11, <laughs> it was awesome. So you're in a good mood? Yes. All right, I'm gonna ask you to think about something. It might be a little uncomfortable. It'll be up to you to decide what you're gonna do with it. It's, it's an equation, it's a mental equation. So you're gonna to have to pay attention and stick with me for a few minutes. You guys up for it? It's an equation that I've been wrestling with for quite some time now. Here's what I want you to understand going into this discussion. I don't come to this platform on a Sunday morning to keep you occupied for an hour. I have a purpose. I have three purposes that I live my life by as a pastor, I consider them my calling. The first is to invite people to place their faith in Jesus Christ as savior. The second is to help people grow in their walk with Christ as a disciple of Jesus. And the third is I exist to help people get prepared to stand before a holy righteous God someday and give an account of their life in eternity. Those are the three things that I exist for. This is part of that discussion. You still interested? After Jesus' resurrection, he met with his disciples and he gave them very specific instructions. He told them what he wanted them to do on his behalf going forward. We found it in Matthew chapter 28. He says this, go, make disciples. The command or the imperative in the Greek language is make disciples. The verse actually reads literally, while you are going, make disciples. In other words, wherever life takes you, if it's Texas, if it's Alabama, if it's Oregon, if it's Asia, if it's Europe, wherever you end up, wherever God leads you as a Christian, here's your marching orders. You are to make disciples. He continues, I want you to baptize these disciples as they make declarations of faith in Jesus Christ. And then I want you to teach them to observe all that I, Jesus, commanded. I want you to help them understand the essence and the truths of their faith. Does that make sense? So the instructions to his disciples, they continue to echo down the quarter of time to the 21st century for each and every one of us who professes to be a disciple of Jesus. We were given the same instructions, go. Make disciples. Teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So, what is a disciple? Well, we're defining that here at Sybil Creek. We're going to be sharing with you some new discoveries that we're going to use to discuss this whole idea of discipleship. It's going to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That was the instructions. Go and help other people be with Jesus be like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. So this, this word that you'll hear from time to time if you hang around the church, it's the word missional. The fundamental call of Jesus in the life of a Christian is missional. In other words, the call of Christ in the life of a Christian is that we are to go and make disciples. That's the instruction. Missional is the invitation to actively engage your world. Your world, not the world, your world. The place you work, where you go to school, where you the neighborhood that you live in, the friends that you run around with, actively engage your world with a servant-hearted compassion for the spiritual well-being of others. This is the call of every Christian to move out into my world out of a heart of compassion about somebody else's spiritual well being. How can I be of help? How can I have an impact? How can I, you ready? You ready? Yep. That was weak. Are you ready? Yes. How can I make disciples like I was instructed? That's the call of every Christian, not pastors. Christ followers. So here's some things that we start to put together. Following Jesus is not a spectator sport. Is that where I come and sit in the seat and watch everybody do it, do the stuff? It's not a private endeavor. I hear this a lot. Well, my relationship with God, a very private thing. It's just personal to me. I don't get involved with too many other people. That is so mistaken. Can I give you a different word other than private endeavor? It's communal. Following Jesus is about being connected, interacting with, being involved with life on life with other people. That's the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Do you think Jesus needed 12 disciples? No, he would have been fine without them. Probably if they even thought I would have been really fine without them. (laughs) But he models for us the priority of doing life together. And then following Jesus is not a religious routine. It's not I go to church, I read my Bible, I say my prayers, I do nice things. And maybe, just maybe, if I'm feeling really generous, I might put some money in the offering plate. That is not following Jesus. Following Jesus is a way that I go about living my life in obedience to what Jesus has instructed me. It's about a development of character, humility, and grace, and compassion, and love, and truthfulness. It's about serving others and being willing to make the sacrifice to do that. Okay, you ready? You still with me? The start is go make disciples. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us this story about a man who has some stewards and he entrusted his property to them and then the the owner went off on a journey. And then in Matthew chapter 25, we read that owner, he returned and he gathered his stewards together and he says, what did you do with what I gave you? And he's teaching us a little bit about what it'd be like to arrive in heaven and God asked us to give an account for how we went about living our lives. And to some of those stewards, God said, well done, good and faithful servant. You took my instructions and you obeyed them and I am pleased and honored with you but he didn't say that to all the servants because some of them, they hadn't been good and faithful with what God had entrusted to their care. You see, God is not operating heaven like a public school system award ceremony where everybody gets a participation trophy. (laughs) He will only say well done, good and faithful servant to servants who did well and who were faithful. You with me? Faithful at what? Faithful at attending church? Faithful at reading your Bible? Faithful at saying your prayers? Faithful at being a nice person? What is he saying, well done, good and faithful servant about? It can only be one thing. And that is, did you make disciples? Because that was the instruction. How you and I stand before God someday to give an account of our lives in hopes of hearing the words, well done, good and faithful steward is all against the backdrop of this is the instructions that I gave you, that you were to go into your world and make other followers of Jesus. If I've never done that, I can't rest assured that I'll stand before God someday and hear, Paul, good job. Because he's not gonna say good job for not doing what I ask you to do. That's the equation. It's uncomfortable to think about. And granted, it'll be up to you to decide. Oh, the preacher, he's full of it. That just sounds like manipulation. He's just trying to get me to do something. I I am. (laughs) But you'll decide, will I really stand before God someday and give an account of my life? Is it really possible that I could stand before God someday and find out that I wasn't good and faithful As a follower of Jesus, because I never got around to doing what he instructed me to do. It was all about me. I was just a consumer. I was just a spectator. I just watched everybody else do all the hard work. I just came to get something out of it. I don't know about you, but for me, that kind of disturbs my soul. And I have a responsibility as your pastor to make you aware of the equation, how you do the math. Again, that's your responsibility. So, let me wrap this up. You ready? A good and faithful servant is one who made a life of mentoring others in the faith of following Jesus. You say, oh, well, how do I do that? I, I don't know enough about my faith to do that. Well, I can tell you the 12 disciples didn't either. But boy, do I have a deal for you. You ready? I am being completely sincere about this. I mean this with my whole heart. Your church's children and student ministries offer you an excellent opportunity to be a good and faithful servant who spent your life discipling others as Jesus instructed. I mean that. You want an opportunity to get involved in obeying the very instruction of Jesus that will determine the evaluation of our faithfulness? I'm telling you, our church is full of opportunities, but our children's and our student ministry are some of the prime places for you, for you to be actively engaged in discipling, helping kids and students grow up and discover their faith. Next week, I'd like to tell you more about how you can do that. But I'll tell you this from experience. There's nothing more fun when it comes to discipling others than in a children or student ministry. Plus it comes with gobs of pizza, soda, donuts. It's just amazing. So yes, I'm all the cards up on the table. I'm coming before you, our church family, I'm saying, I want you to stand before God someday and I want you to hear the words, well done. You were good and you were faithful at doing the thing that I ask of you and that was to make disciples. And I want you to understand that this church offers you all sorts of opportunities to be actively engaged in helping pass faith from one generation onto the next by you, you getting actively engaged as a volunteer minister in the life of either our children or student ministries. We should never lack for volunteers. Not because of volunteerism, but because there's a church full of people who are hungry to do what Jesus asked them to do and make disciples in the hopes of standing before God someday and hearing the words, well done. You, you did a great job. You were faithful at the things that matter. Make sense? I'll tell you honestly, it'll involve some sacrifice. It won't always be convenient. It may not always be comfortable or easy. That's why we must never forget Jesus. Because what did he do? He was willing to make the sacrifice to be uncomfortable, to do what was really hard, to make sure that you and I were rightly related with God when he gave his life on the cross. Folks, I ask you to trust my intentions toward you this morning. We didn't decide to have communion to sort of turn the screws. We had the communion this morning to remind us of what Jesus was willing to do to give us life. It's the place that we always come back to when we're trying to make decisions about what we do from here. Serving our children and our students, our young people of this church, that next generation, it'll take the heart of Christ be willing to do all that it will require but I doubt that you could make a more important choice in life when it comes to doing what Jesus asked you to do and that was to go and make disciples something to think about I hope that you'll think about it let me ask you to stand and pray God you know my heart you know every time that I've tried to whine or rationalize or excuse something I didn't want to do you've always brought me back to the cross and reminded me of Jesus and what he was willing to do so father I pray that not because of anything I might have said but because of the work of your Holy Spirit in people's lives that they'll seriously consider how they can be engaged in the life of our church and paying it forward passing it on whether it's their sons and daughters or not that as a village we would all assume responsibility for the well-being of our next generation. Do that work in our hearts, I pray and ask in Christ's name,